Ginger, Ginger broke the window, broke the window, cracked the baker, came out, the boom car out, and landed on his back. Fuck you. I look around this room and I see white faces and black faces, every color in between, and the only thing that I know for sure is that we're all shit. I'd be able to get a cab now. Go on, sir. I don't give a shit. Talking about revolution. What I saw, that was revelation. You frolicking with the devil's maiden. I said I want my eyes back. Give them back to me. Here. Why not? You took them. Yeah, I'm a piece of shit. I am worthless. As bad as they come. Hello everyone and welcome to Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. So today we're going to be talking about Series 3, Episode 6, Cruel and Unusual Punishments. I'm quite excited to talk about this one as I feel like there's been a bit of a lull in certain aspects of this third series. It hasn't been bad by any stretch and when it's good, it's been very good. But there have been moments where it just feels like certain storylines are being drawn out a little bit or others are just plodding along with no real advancement. Holding an 8.4 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana, and was directed by our very own Terry Kinney, becoming the only person to appear on the show, as well as direct an episode. We talked back in Series 2 about his theatre directing background, but this is Terry's directorial debut for film or TV. The episode was originally broadcast on August 18th, 1999, a day on which S.R. Nathan was declared the president of Singapore despite no election taking place, Ramos Horta, the 1996 Nobel Prize winner, warned the Indonesian government that computer hackers would wreak havoc on the country if voting in the East Timor were to be hampered, while in the music charts Christina Aguilera held on to the number one spot for a third straight week on the Billboard Hot 100 with a second single, Genie in a Bottle, with the Backstreet Boys' Millennium album replacing Limp Bizkit's significant other at the summit of the album chart. In the UK charts, Westlife shot straight to number one in the singles chart with their road to hostage negotiations, If I Let You Go, while the number one spot in the album chart was being held by their Emerald Isle counterparts, Boyzone, with their album By Request. Life in Oz sucks, and only a fool or Republican will tell you different. But the punishments they got going here are nowhere near as fucked up as in olden days. Example, if a guy drank too much, the constable would make him wear a drunkard's cloak, which was a whiskey barrel with holes for the head, the arms, and the legs. Then they'd make the drunk walk around the town square, where everyone would call him names. Yo, retard! You're next! Act 1 kicks off with Augustus narrating about torture devices from ye olden days, this one being focused on how a drunk would be made to wear a whiskey barrel, known as a drunkard's cloak, and paraded through the town square where they would be heckled by the townspeople. As the monologue finishes, we're in the gym where Cyril is training for his upcoming semi-final in the boxing against Chucky. He's also in the gym and calls Cyril a retard, which is a word that has only really come under scrutiny in recent years and he's training with some poor schmuck who he sparks out with a hard right hand to the jaw, and channels his inner Bill Goldberg telling Cyril, you're next. I doubt that that's a direct reference, but 1999 was a time when Bill Goldberg was a massive star in WCW, and was in that period where pro wrestling was incredibly popular, so people would have known that catchphrase. 
Chuck Zito had actually made a handful of appearances for WCW along with some of the members of the Hells Angels in July and February of 1999, between Series 2 and 3. Cyril looks at Chucky in awe, which is understandable. Chucky does look like he's been chiseled out of granite. But Ryan pushes the heavy bag into Cyril and tells him to keep punching and ignore Chucky. Murphy's also in the gym, and even he seems at a loss on how to advise on beating Chucky, which carries over into the next scene in M-City, with him saying that Chucky's tough and has heavy hands, a good chin, but most importantly is a mean son of a bitch. He says that the only advantage that Cyril has is his speed, but Ryan seems certain of something else that might help Cyril out, and that he has faith in his brother. Murphy says that faith might be a good thing, but he'd put his money on Chucky to win this one. Whether or not Murphy is actually betting on the fights is up for debate. Personally, I think he's a pretty straight arrow, wouldn't risk his job just to make a few extra bucks by gambling on them. Ryan meets up with Cudney in the classroom once again and tells him that he needs more of the chloral hydrate even showing him a little hiding place that he's crafted inside a Bible. Which is one of those great cliches that you always see in prison movies. They're always hiding something in books for some reason. It's usually in the shape of a hammer that they cut it. But Cudney tells him no, because stealing is wrong, and that he's confessed in front of the other Christian inmates to what he's been doing, and that he's figured out what Ryan's been doing with the stolen drugs. He also tells Ryan that he's made an appointment with Leo to confess everything regarding their little scheme, because he feels as though his and Ryan's souls are in jeopardy, and that he's actually going to be saving Ryan by turning him in. But Ryan jokes that he'll save Cudney's soul first, as he leaves the room and heads down to talk with Yuri. He doesn't look like he wants to talk at first, but a wad of dollar bills soon changes his mind, and he allows Ryan to enter his pot. Ryan reaffirms what Nappa was telling us last episode about Yuri being the toughest hitman in Little Odessa, saying that must count for something because Russian mob guys are a bunch of crazy fucked up motherfuckers, and gets straight down to business, saying that he needs a job done pronto, and starts to count out some money, telling Yuri to stop when he hits the right amount. Flash cut to the count later on where Menio is conducting his checks, but Cudney is missing from the lineup. He calls out to Cudney to move his ass, but he doesn't seem to be forthcoming, so Menio and Murphy head inside Cudney's pod, which seems to be the larger communal pod that Scott Ross was in back in series one. They find Cudney in his bed, and as Murphy checks for a pulse, Menio notices blood and two little holes on Cudney's neck and they use all their detective skills to conclude that Cudney has been stabbed in the neck. Cut back to Yuri's pod where he is reattaching the rubber onto the arms of his glasses. The murder weapon in this case is indicated with a lovely shiny bit of brightness which was clearly added in post-production to draw attention to the sharp ends. Nikolai is in the pod with him, once again speaking Russian and once again with no helpful subtitles, but he seems noticeably more erratic than usual and worried about something. Not that Yuri gives anything away as he shouts at Nikolai and then leaves the pod, passing Cyril and Ryan, who gives him a knowing nod of the head as if to say, it's done. Part of me feels like this part of the storyline could have been played out over the course of the whole episode, with Ryan trying to intimidate Cudney about going to speak with Leo, but with Cudney refusing to back down, leading to Ryan resorting to having Cudney killed as a desperate measure, and then moving the fight maybe to the final scene. 
The reason for why this plays out in this part of the episode is probably to accommodate a scene later on, but I'll talk about that in a little while. But the show itself doesn't tend to do stories with that kind of structure. Most stories tend to have their own segment of the show setting something up, but we won't see that pay off until a future episode. Sometimes it's the next one, sometimes it's a few episodes down the line. And that's partly due to having so many different stories going on at any one time. Without his chloral hydrate, Ryan has to resort to using something a little stronger this time to affect Chucky's performance. And we see him pouring some heroin into Chucky's water bottle, and even taking a cheeky hit of himself as he smears it onto his teeth. I always associate doing that with cocaine, which obviously he isn't putting into Chucky's water as that would have the opposite effect. And you also see it with the use of methamphetamine, which famously causes all sorts of dental issues. But this is, I think, the only time I've ever seen someone do this with heroin, as it tends to be portrayed on TV and in movies as an intravenous drug. So next up is the fight between Chucky and Cyril, but before we get going with that, you'll remember that I've talked about Chuck Zito having past boxing experience, as well as Robert Clehesi having competed in the New York Golden Gloves in 1975. Well, it turns out that Robert isn't the only one to have done so, as Chuck Zito, having had some amateur fights and having dropped out of high school, also competed in the Golden Gloves tournament on January 30th, 1973. But to tell that story, it's time for another dose of the truth, according to Chuck Zito. So Chuck Zeta at this point has had some amateur fights as well as dropping out of high school, and the story of his first Golden Gloves goes as follows. By the time I was 19 years old, Dad had moved to an apartment on 7 West 14th Street, which wasn't far from the Gramercy Gym. So I started the train there, with my father guiding my workouts. I fought my first fight in the Golden Gloves, the king of all amateur boxing tournaments, on January 30th 1973, my father's birthday. I was 19 years old, almost 20. I'd fought before, of course, so I knew what to expect. I knew what it felt like to get hit in the face and to have my nose splattered. Still, that first night sitting in the dressing room at Madison Square Garden's Felt Forum, I was so nervous that my stomach was doing somersaults. It was an interesting scene. There were several fighters in the room, like gladiators, preparing for battle. We shared the same space, which meant we all tried to hide our fear and anxiety for we didn't want any potential opponents to sense our weaknesses. As my father taped my hands and slid my gloves over my fists, I looked around the room. Everyone seemed to be lost in their own world, and quite frankly, no one looked all that intimidating, with one notable exception. In a far corner of the room sitting on a milk crate, rubbing his gloves together staring off into space, was a thickly muscled black man with a receding hairline and a nose that appeared to have been broken about 50 times. He looked like he couldn't wait to get in the ring and do some damage. Jesus Christ, I said to my father. I'd hate to be the poor sap who's fighting that guy. My father looked up briefly, grunted, and went back to working on my hands. I laughed a little at my own joke, mainly because I knew I wouldn't be facing the killer in the corner. This guy had to be a middleweight. He looked like he weighed at least 160 pounds. I was 147, a welterweight. My opponent was some guy named Joe Pratt. I looked around the room, Pratt. An ordinary name. Could have been just about anybody. Mine was the very first fight on the card. In fact, since this was the opening night, 
it was the first fight of the entire tournament, so it wasn't long before an official came into the dressing room and summoned me to the ring. Okay, gentlemen, he said, looking at the clipboard. First up, Zito and Pratt. Let's go. I stood up, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw movement in the distance. Someone rising from a milk crate. Oh, no. Yep, the big guy in the corner, the one with the muscles on top of muscles, that was Joe Pratt. Holy fucking shit, he's gonna kill me. My father gave me a little shove, and the next thing I knew we were both in the ring. Me and Joe Pratt, the welderweight who looked like a middleweight, bouncing around, throwing jabs at the air. I wore my father's old shoes that night, as well as his old trunks. I even wore a robe bearing his name. I'd given it to him as a present a few years earlier to replace the one I destroyed when I was a little kid. Well, actually, not his name, but the name of the fighter he'd once been. Al Lababa? Al Lababa, the ring announcer said to me. Who the hell is Al Lababa? I thought this was Zito and Pratt. Yeah, it is. I'm wearing my father's robe. He nodded, shrugged his shoulders, and introduced us to the audience. Which, by the way, included all of my friends, my family, and even my boss. As my name echoed throughout the arena, I sensed a completely different atmosphere from anything I'd experienced in boxing. I'd had plenty of amateur bouts, but this felt so much bigger, so much more important. Not just because it was the Golden Gloves, but because I was standing in the same ring where so many great boxers had fought in the past, including Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Muhammad Ali, and my dad, Al Ababa. To me, it was like being in the Olympics. My father didn't provide much in the way of instruction. He just put in my mouthpiece, smacked me on the back of the head, and said, move and stick. The bell rang and Joe Pratt seemed to leap off his chair and into the middle of the ring in a single motion, like a tiger pouncing on its prey. I'd barely taken a step when I felt a stinging sensation in my left temple. It hit me solidly with an overhand right, so hard that I saw stars for a moment that I thought I might go down right there, ending my Golden Gloves dream in approximately 15 seconds. I took a drunken step backward to give my head a chance to clear, and as the fog lifted I thought, what the fuck am I doing here anyway? Instinct took over soon enough though, and I began moving and punching, moving and punching. He was bigger and stronger than I was, older and more experienced too, so I couldn't afford to get into a brawl with him. I had to box. I landed a few right hands which gave me confidence and seemed to frustrate him. Then I threw a jab and he came down underneath it. For an instant, his head was wide open and I knew I had it. He was strong alright, but he was reckless. Eventually there would be another mistake, another opportunity and I'd be ready. The nervousness drained from my body. Now I was confident, excited. It was the second round before the window opened again. Joe Pratt, tired and irritated that he hadn't been able to put away this smaller Italian kid, came down underneath another right jab and this time I hit him as hard as I could with an uppercut. His legs buckled, and he crumpled to the floor, out cold. As my friends screamed their lungs out, my father jumped into the ring and wrapped his arms around me. After all we'd been through, I have to admit that it felt great to win his approval, and to make him proud. It turned out that we had more in common than I'd been willing to accept or believe. Like Al Lababa, I was a boxer with a heavy punch, and like Charles Zito, I had a taste for blood. The next day, a story on the Golden Gloves tournament appeared in the centerfold section of the Daily News, which was sold at virtually every supermarket on my route. Everyone seemed to know that I had won, and they were quick to offer the congratulations. I felt like the champion of the world. 
Boxing brought me closer to my father, helped heal some of the wounds that had opened and festered over the years. We spent a fair amount of time together while I was training. We even joined a bowling league together. We competed at the Rec Bowling Alley above the Lowe's Movie Theatre on Main Street in New Rochelle, on a team sponsored by Carroll Brothers Roofing. In fact, we were supposed to bowl on the night of the second round of the Golden Gloves. It was a single elimination tournament, which meant you fought until you lost, and thanks to my knockout with Joe Pratt, I was still alive. So we urged our teammates to try and find a couple of replacements for us. We're going to be busy, I proudly explained. The fight was held at the Audubon Ballroom, most famous for being the site of the assassination of Malcolm X. The Audubon is located in a predominantly black and Hispanic neighbourhood, and by this time, I was one of the few remaining white guys in the tournament. My opponent was a tall, lean Puerto Rican kid, and not surprisingly, the crowd was heavily in his favour. The bell hadn't even rung when the taunting began. Whip that honky's ass! Kill that white motherfucker! I figured the best way to shut them up was to end the fight quickly, so that's what I did. Even though this was a second round match and presumably the quality of competition was better, this kid wasn't nearly as good a fighter as Pratt had been. I knocked him out in the first round, and afterwards, as the official raised my hand and the ring announcer declared me the winner, more insults rained down upon me. You're lucky white boy! Better watch your ass when you leave tonight, punk! As I laughed at them, my father wrapped my robe around me and pulled me close. Keep your mouth shut, he said. Let's get to the dressing room and get out of here. We hustled not only because we wanted to avoid getting jumped by the crowd, but also because we hoped to get back to New Rochelle in time to make our bowling match. We walked in just as our league was getting started, prompting everyone to ask what had happened. Didn't you have a fight tonight, Chuck? My father smiled. Yeah, he said, throwing a little jab. First round knockout. Then everyone surrounded me, patted me on the back, treated me like a hero. And I thought to myself, I could get used to this. Unfortunately, and predictably, the sporadic nature of my training caught up with me in the next round, and I was eliminated from the tournament. Without a tangible goal in sight, I trained even less over the next few months. That was pretty much the story of my boxing career. Long periods of inactivity interrupted by bursts of intense training and occasional competition. I fought in the Golden Gloves four times, even made it to the semi-finals of the New York competition one year. After that, I stopped boxing seriously. There just wasn't time. It still bothers me to this day that I never reached my potential as a boxer. I don't know for sure whether I would have won a professional championship, but I know I had the talent, and I know that I would have been a formidable presence in the ring. So that's the story of Chuck Zito's foray into the world of the Golden Gloves tournament. And unlike the story of him battering the shit out of Jean-Claude Van Damme, this one does go down more or less exactly as Chuck has explained it here. There's photographic evidence for the fight, so I'm not denying that it ever happened, obviously it did. However, the knockout aspects of the story seem to be Zito embellishing things slightly, as according to BoxRec.com, those wins were recorded as referee stoppages, with the loss being a points decision to a man named, it's either Orlando Neves or Orlando Neves, I'm not sure of the pronunciation. Zito also claims to have competed in the Golden Gloves on four separate occasions, even reaching the semi-finals one year although I couldn't find any record of that having occurred, nor does he cover it in his book. He just mentions that he competed four times. More of the truth according to Chuck Zito another time, but the time has come to send one of these men through to the finals of the boxing tournament. And as a bit of fun, I've decided to go through this one with some live commentary, so fire up your DVD players, or Amazon Prime, or HBO Max if you're that way inclined, and head to around the six minute mark, as ladies and gentlemen, 
Live from the Oswald State Correctional Facility, Level 4, it's showtime! cafeteria for the semi-final between Chucky Pancamo and Cyril O'Reilly. Chucky definitely looks like Sylvester Stallone in Rocky IV at this point. He's just thrown his headgear out. There's no way this fight would be allowed to go ahead without the headgear. Chucky's just shaking his head saying, no, 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 I'm not putting that fucking thing on. The crowd wants him to fight. Dagnasta looks to McManus and we've got the okay. This is actually going to go ahead. Like I say, boxing programs are fiercely regulated. There's no way this would be allowed to go on with no headgear. Chucky taking the center of the ring, controlling the action. Cyril having the circle on the outside there. Got the gay inmates. Augustus was watching too. Chucky giving out, He's, he wants to fight Cyril, he's been a bit more cautious though, and you can understand why. Leo looking bored out of his mind, <laughs> clearly not a boxing fan. And a body shot and a jab from Cyril there, well done. But Chucky just waving it off saying, nah, nothing there. And he takes the centre of the ring again. Oh, a good jab there from Chucky. And another one, and another one, and a shot after the bell. Why Dynasty's counting, I don't know, because that was after the bell. Presumably that was a shot for later on. So here we are again, Chucky taking on the water and everything's starting to slow down a little bit. We've seen this uh, technique used throughout this third series. And Chucky with a wild swing as he comes out there. Cyril firing off some good jabs. Some good body shots from Cyril there. Murphy looking a little bit concerned. Chucky noticeably slower in this round. But he's again taking the center. Cyril firing off some good jabs again. Starting to come back. Oh, I spoke too soon. He's down on his ass. <laughs> At least it was in the round this time. Bruce Mallers probably losing another bet there, holding his head in his hands. Dagnasty with a count of seven, eight. Cyril saved by the bell this time. Chucky taking on some more water there. Very quick cutting in the, between the rounds here. There's, there's Chucky again taking on some more water. And we're into this slow motion now. Like I said, this has been used throughout this third series. It's the only real way that you can show the effects of the drugs. <laughs> Chucky looks like he's asleep. Cyril's still looking relatively fresh though. And a good jab there from Cyril. Even the McManus looks impressed with that. But now to the body from Cyril. 
More shots to the body. Chucky having to hold on for dear life. Oh, he looks like he wants to fight Dag Nasty now. <laughs> a wild swing and a good right from Cyril there. He's got Chucky backed up in the ropes. He's going to the body. <laughs> Chucky turns it around. Swings wildly. He's now caught up in the ropes. And a wild right from Cyril. And another one. And Pancamo is down. And is that it? It's over. Cyril wins. Cyril wins. Cyril is heading to the championship bout. Chucky Pancamo doesn't know what day it is. What a win for Cyril O'Reilly. Back in M-City, Ryan is helping Cyril wind down after the fight, telling him that he did great and that Cyril just needs to believe in himself. Nikolai pays them a visit and pays up what he owes to Ryan for betting on Chucky, but he's taking it pretty well and he even congratulates Cyril on his win. He then asks to speak to Ryan alone, Ryan sending Cyril downstairs to watch Miss Sally, but he's sure to tell Cyril that he'll be okay. Nikolai tells Ryan that he's heard about Yuri doing a job for him, and that Yuri is dangerous, unpredictable, and unreliable. But Ryan plays dumb with a hint of sarcasm, pretending not to know what Nikolai's talking about. Nikolai changes tactics and makes out that Yuri is planning on telling the authorities about killing Kudney, which Ryan again plays dumb to being aware of. Quite as to why Yuri would do that is anybody's guess, but it's more likely that Nikolai is just lying about it in order to trick Ryan. Which, as I've alluded to previously, I'm still convinced that Nikolai is full of shit the majority of the time. Ryan seems to feel this way also, telling Nikolai that in America they have a saying, you can't shit a shitter. That seems on first hearing to be Ryan putting his own spin on the common phrase, you can't kid a kidder. But that line was apparently used by Joe Biden, the former vice president and possible future president at the time of recording, on a trip to the Soviet Union in 1979 when he was the senator for Delaware. And it also turns up in the 2005 movie The League of Gentlemen's Apocalypse. Ryan sees through Nikolai's plan of getting him to be the one to kill Yuri, telling him no chance, but does offer some free advice by telling Nikolai to get the Italians to do the deed instead. He actually refers to them as the Sicilians, and there seems to be this thing of the Italians constantly being referred to differently depending on who's talking about them, almost like the show can't quite settle on a definitive name for the group. They started off as the Wise Guys, which they do still occasionally get referred to as being as. They've been the Italians, which is what I've probably called them for most of the podcast and will continue to do so for continuity. But here is the first reference to them as the Sicilians, almost like they're differentiating themselves from the other Italian inmates who might not be connected like they are, and could be indicative of Chucky, having taken over in M-City in Napa's absence, looking to re-establish the group, or rebrand as you might say these days. Taking Ryan's advice, Nikolai heads down to the laundry room for a talk with Chucky. Mr. Bencamo. Yeah. May I approach? Sure, approach. Recently, you and I had a conversation about Yuri Kosygin. He's very disrespectful. Da. He is also... I bet on you. I lost very heavy. He won very heavy. Yeah. He told me he spiked your water with heroin in order to, um, how do you say, fuck you up. I knew it. God damn it, I fucking knew it. 
I hope you don't mind me telling you this. No, I don't mind. I appreciate it. In fact, I owe you one. I really like Nikolai playing up to having to be respectful to Chucky by asking if he was allowed to approach. He's seen firsthand how seriously Chucky and the other Italians take being respectful, so he clearly wants to get in their good graces. It also shows an amount of cunning from Nikolai that we've not seen from him before. He's essentially got Ryan to confess his plan of helping Cyril through the tournament, which is information that he could use against Ryan further down the line, but for now he's going to take it and use it to solve his Yuri problem. So Chucky and Ryan are summoned to McManus' office to discuss the alleged cheating, but McManus, sneaking in a cheeky bullshit which nearly got past me, oh, bullshit. isn't willing to cave to Chucky's request of a do-over, nor is he willing to waste money on having Chucky drug-tested, calling him a sore loser before dismissing him from the office. And McManus doesn't show any fear in telling Chucky to leave, he's not intimidated by Chucky in the slightest, which was great to see. Ryan, having worked himself out of being under suspicion by roping Nikolai into his plan, leaves too despite not being asked about any of this so-called cheating, which is the only reason he would have been there, but he didn't really have to defend anything because Chucky is doing a fine job of fucking it up for himself with his demands. The pair of them head downstairs, with Ryan telling Chucky that he's made a mistake by making the authorities aware of Yuri drugging him, saying that if Yuri winds up dead, then Chucky will be the prime suspect, as Chucky gives a derpy sounding, oh yeah, that's right. Ryan, however, sees a way out of this predicament, and suggests that Chucky get Yuri sent to either solitary or to death row, and throws Nikolai under the bus by saying that Chucky's problems will be solved once Yuri finds out that Nikolai was the one that ratted on him. These two scenes of Nikolai coming to speak to him and Ryan talking him round show Chucky to be a bit of an idiot who's easy to manipulate, which doesn't bode well if he's to be acting as the Italian's leader while Napa's in Unit E. He doesn't question what Nikolai is telling him at any point, he goes complaining to McManus about it, and then sides with a guy who minutes earlier he was at odds with. In many ways he's very similar to Kenny leading the homeboys in that he doesn't tend to look at the wider picture. He just moves forward and doesn't play the political game like others do, something which could have dire consequences in the future. We get an Augustus vignette where he discusses people being made to wear a brank, more commonly known as a skull's bridle, as the ceiling comes down from above. The part about having a spiked plate in the mouth isn't necessarily true. There would be a plate there, but it was more often than not just flat metal to cause discomfort through excessive salivating with scold being the term given to a gossip or a woman who was deemed to have had a bad temper and was designed to humiliate rather than directly inflict pain. We cut to the library where Nikolai runs into Yuri. He starts to speak Russian, but Yuri thankfully tells him, you're in America now, Nikolai, let's speak American, which is going to make this scene much easier to talk about than the previous ones. I can understand why they've had Yuri and Nikolai speak in Russian so far as it has kept an air of mystery to their relationship, but it's made parts of the show really difficult to review, which for a review podcast is pretty essential. Yuri says that unlike Nikolai, he wasn't a criminal back in their homeland, as he then pours some water over the electronic lock on the library door. It's never been shown before that these doors have electric locks, because up until now it's not been important. In previous episodes, these doors always tend to be open, so it's hard to say whether or not these locks have always been like this. Yuri continues to tell his story about leaving his teaching job and coming to America after the collapse of the Soviet Union to find a better life for himself and his wife, meaning he arrived in either late 1991 or early 1992, all the while making his way around the room pouring water onto the other locks. 
There even seems to be an entire door that we've never seen before. Failing to get a teaching job in America, Yuri tells Nikolai about taking a painting job for Leonard Radzinski, who doesn't seem to be based on anyone in particular, but in the Oz universe was a member of the Organizatia, the Russian Mafia. Yuri recalls being treated like shit and made to do menial tasks like scrubbing the toilet, and details how following an altercation in which Leonid kicked Yuri in full view of his wife, Yuri strangled him as he locks the final door, leaving Nikolai with no escape. Nikolai tries to leave, but Yuri wants to finish his story, Nikolai pointing out that he's barely said two words beforehand, but is now a regular Bolton, a Russian word for chatterbox or blabbermouth, but Yuri insists that it just takes a bit of time for him to warm to people, and that he feels as though they're close. Nikolai tries the first door, but it's not opening due to the water on the electronic lock, which apparently doesn't hurt as Nikolai doesn't even flinch at the pain that he should be feeling. He tries the other doors as Yuri talks about feeling guilt for his killing, but he earned a reputation for being ruthless, which led to him being hired as a mafia hitman, and that it was easier the second time round, and then the third, and so on and so on. Nikolai begins to panic as Yuri says that at last count he had murdered at least 49 people, and that Nikolai will have the honour of being his 50th. Nikolai cries out for help from the guards, and he tries to put some distance between he and Yuri with a table as he tries to escape through the fenced door. But Yuri, much like he did to Kutney earlier, stabs Nikolai in the neck with his glasses as guards manage to break open the first door, running in to make the save, dragging Yuri away as he laughs maniacally, and Nikolai is rushed to the hospital for a blood transfusion. Yuri is thrown into the hole, and we see Ryan and Chucky, having stolen Nikolai's bottle of vodka, toast to no hard feelings to close out Act 1. I was possessed by guilt for killing Rodzinski, but I got a reputation for being ruthless. The organization hired me to exterminate someone else. The second time was no, Yuri, easier. Yuri, please, Pujalsta, I don't want to hear this. Third time, no problem at all. Yuri, please. At last count, I had murdered at least 49 people. You have the honor of being my 50th. No! No, you wait now! Pastrelai. This scene always reminds me of a scene in Ridley Scott's Hannibal, the underrated sequel to Silence of the Lambs, which came out a couple of years after this episode and has at least six members of the Oz cast in it, where Hannibal Lecter is tormenting a police officer about eating his wife. And I referenced last episode about how I felt like Yuri had a Hannibal Lecter-type quality to him. I'm not saying that this influenced that scene in the movie, but they do play out very similar in their setup and the tone. At last count, I had murdered at least... 49 people. You have the honor of being my 50th. It's your ancestor, Commendatore, hanging beneath these very windows. Francesca de Pazzi. 
On a related subject, I must confess to you, I'm giving very serious thought. To eating your wife. We settle things down with the opening of Act 2, where Ryan, Cyril, Keller and Augustus are watching Miss Sally and debating whether Neuter is gay or not. Augustus says that the puppets are fighting, but Ryan seems pretty sure due to the amount of body contact, as Keller switches the conversation to one of the Teletubbies being gay. This, for anybody that doesn't remember, was for one reason or another a huge talking point surrounding the Teletubbies, particularly here in the UK where the show was made. But as Keller mentions here, in the US it was brought to attention by Jerry Falwell, a southern-based pastor and televangelist and former leader of the moral majority, who around this time had described Tinky Winky as a gay role model, although the character had been outed a couple of years earlier in 1997 by Andy Medhurst, cultural critic for the British magazine The Face. Writing in the National Liberty Journal, Mr Falwell presented his case, citing that Tinky Winky was gay because, quote, he is purple, the gay pride colour, and his antenna is shaped like a triangle, the gay pride symbol, end quote, while also noting that the character carried around a purse-like bag. Responding to Mr Falwell's claims, the BBC, who broadcast the show in the UK and distributed it worldwide, explained that Tinky Winky is simply a sweet, technological baby with a magic bag, while Kevin Visselman of Itsy Bitsy Entertainment noted that he's not gay, he's not straight, He's just a character in a children's series. In addition to talking out of his arse regarding perceived homosexuality in children's TV programming, Mr Falwell also claimed in 2001 following the September 11th terrorist attacks on an episode of Pat Robertson's The 700 Club that, I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle, the ACLU, people for the American way, all of them who have tried to secularise America, I point the finger in their face, and you helped this happen. And that the attacks were probably deserved due to LGBT organisations angering God. Following heavy criticism, Falwell apologised for his remarks, a move which subsequently drew outrage from his own followers. For more psychobabble from Mr Falwell, including his anti-Semitic apocalyptic beliefs, head on over to the social and political views of his Wikipedia page, where I'm sure you won't be shocked to discover a lot more of his controversial hot takes. Getting back to the episode, and with regards to the Neuter and Pecky puppets, this was the first time where I noticed in the credits there is actually a credit for their creator, B.T. Whitehill. Later in the day, Ryan is dealing some drugs when he's approached by Miguel, Carlo and Chico, telling him that El Cid wants a meeting, and we head upstairs to their pod. El Cid and Miguel talk about how they're always talking about how Ryan is no dummy, Ryan saying that the feeling is mutual, but El Cid questions why he acts as though El Cid is an idiot, something which leaves Ryan silent. He explains about how Ryan knows about the deal that he has with Adebisi and the rebranded Italians, and how they're running the drugs throughout Oz, but that he's aware of Ryan's still selling, which Ryan tries to play off as being silly, but he doesn't deny it fully, saying that he only sells a little, and certainly not enough to compete. El Cid doesn't care though and demands that Ryan stop, and gets angry when Ryan asks if he's run this by Adebisi and Chucky. Asking whether or not his word is good enough for him, Ryan concedes and promises to stop selling before being made to give whatever stash he has on him, which he seems reluctant to do at first, saying that it'll be for his own personal use, 
But with El Cid being aware of Ryan being in the rehab group and that Ryan has no need for it, he's made to hand it over following a thorough search by Miguel, who even finds the one in Ryan's sock which he claims he'd forgotten about. Ryan is sent on his way having come to an understanding, but once he leaves he passes Murphy, who he tells that if he's ever wanted to bust El Cid, now is his chance. Murphy grabs a couple of CRs and heads up the staircase, complete with very wobbly handrails, and they need to work on their approach technique because Miguel hears them coming from a mile away and is able to make a quick escape down the stairs on the opposite side as the other Latinos are searched and led away to be questioned. Ryan tells Miguel that that's a real heartbreaker, showing that he isn't going to be intimidated, and that when backed into a corner, Ryan will fight back. I've described him as cunning on the show before, always getting others to do his dirty work, and I've no doubt that he would have found a way to get back at the Latinos eventually, but seizing the opportunity like that while Murphy was passing shows that he can improvise when he needs to. Really good stuff there. Cut to Miguel meeting with Sister Pete, and he asks to see exactly what he did to Rivera. Pete says that he'll have that chance once the two of them meet, but Miguel is meaning that he wants to look at the photographs that would have been taken on the day of the attack which he knows exist from when he used to work in the hospital. Because he walked away from the attack at the time, he hasn't seen the damage that he's caused, and that's why he wants to look at a photo, but Pete doesn't think that it would be a good idea. Miguel describes the attack as being a blur, and that when he gets up and looks in the mirror, he doesn't see himself. All that he sees is the other person that carried out the attack. Pete asks what he thinks seeing the photograph will do, which Miguel doesn't seem to know for sure other than it might help him to forget about that other person that he sees and to let him be alone with himself again as Pete says that she'll see what she can do. I've really come to like these scenes of Miguel meeting up with Sister Pete, taking these baby steps towards coming to terms with what he's done and how he's changed Rivera's life. Miguel came into the show with a swagger which was taken away from him very quickly. First of all being stabbed on arrival to M-City, then the death of his newborn son, his conflicting views with the other leaders during the riot, and then his emotional breakdown after being sent to solitary. This program of Sister Pete is allowing him to come back from all of that, but it's doing so by making him take responsibility for his actions, which he does seem to want to do at times and at others seems anxious about, and while there had to be a trade-off from Leo to allow him out of solitary to participate, Miguel is one of the few examples on the show so far of rehabilitation actually appearing to be working. Tina visits with Pete, and much like last time, she's ranting and raving, telling Pete to stop trying to get her husband to meet with Miguel, saying that he isn't acting normal anymore. Pete, however, says that when Rivera is with her, he seems calm and open to talking, which I'm sure did wonders for Tina's confidence, as she says that it's an act and that at home he says nothing. Pete takes a bold step in asking whether or not it's Tina who isn't willing to talk, or that maybe Rivera is afraid that she might not be willing to support him, as she didn't want him to be involved in the program to begin with. Still not playing by the no-swearing-at-nuns rule, Tina says that she's changed her entire life for her husband, which Pete mentions about Rivera talking about during their meetings, but she drops the bomb that Rivera has also mentioned about having suicidal thoughts which stops Tina in her tracks, clearly unaware of how her husband has been feeling. Pete tells Tina about her husband's murder and how she wallowed in grief until it consumed her, and that Rivera has two choices, move on or die. She supports Tina by saying that she's come this far with him, 
and that she needs to go the rest of the way as they head off to her office to continue to talk. The scene closes with Miguel coming face to face with what he's done as he looks at the photograph of Rivera's slashed eyes. The realisation hitting him as he slaps himself in the face repeatedly, dropping to his knees and struggling for breath, as Pete cradles him in her arms for comfort as we fade to black. I thought that Rita and Kirk were both very good once again in these scenes. Judy Reyes, not so much. Granted, Tina is a relatively new character, but all that she's done since she first appeared is shout and holler and argue with everyone. And while they did try and remedy that here by having the wind taken out of her sails when Pete revealed Rivera's suicidal thoughts, and while how she feels is completely justified, it's really hard to get behind her because of how she comes across. We come back up on Unit E where Napper is recording some thoughts for his tell-all book using a dictaphone, another relic of the 90s and big timestamp for this episode. He quickly turns the recorder off when his new cellmate turns up, Nat Ginsberg, played by Charles Bush. Born August 23rd, 1954 in Hartsdale, New York, Charles moved to Manhattan at the age of seven following the death of his mother to live with his aunt. Attending Manhattan's High School of Music before attending Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, graduating with a BA in Drama in 1976, Charles initially found it difficult to get cast so began writing material of his own, including the play Sister Act, which got a lot of attention from others on campus. Paying his dues on the New York Dragon Theatre scene, Charles toured the country for his one-man non-drag show, alone with a cast of thousands. Returning to New York and working a number of jobs to make ends meet, including being a telephone sales rep, an office assistant, and a portrait artist at bar mitzvahs, Charles tried one last throw of the dice, performing a skit at the Limbo Lounge in New York's East Village. Proving to be a hit, Charles developed the skit into the satirical play Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, which ran off-Broadway at the Provincetown Playhouse from 1985 to 1990. In addition, Charles also received writing credits for Theodora, She-Bitch of Byzantium, Times Square Angel, Psycho Beach Party, The Lady in Question, and Red Scare on Sunset. In 1993, Charles produced his own review show, which ran at the Ballroom Theatre, and also appeared in a revival of The Maids, playing the role of Solange. Not restricted to writing theatre, Charles wrote the 1993 novel Halls of Lost Atlantis, a retelling of the creation of Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, as well as adapting The Green Heart, based on Jack Ritchie's short story, which ran at the Variety Arts Theatre in 1997. That same year, Charles wrote Queen Amarantha, which played at the WPA Theatre from October, while in July 1999, Charles played Die, Mommy, Die, opened in Los Angeles at the Courthouse Theatre shortly before this episode aired. Charles' roles on TV and film were limited at this point, his debut coming with voice work for the film Gandahar in 1987, and in minor roles in 1993's Adam's Family Values, It Could Happen to You in 1994, and Trouble on the Corner in 1997 before appearing here on Oz. So Nat and Napper get acquainted, Napper saying that this is his cell and insists on being called Mr. Napper. He also doesn't take kindly to Nat's saucy joke about how they love to eat Italian, very much going for an odd couple vibe here. Asking about what he's writing, Nat connects the dots about Napper being connected to the mob, and reckons that it could be quite the read, asking whether or not Napper needs a Boswell, which could be referring to one of two things. Either it's the Scottish biographer James Boswell, 
the ninth Laird of Auchinleckan, who is perhaps best known for the 1791 biography of Samuel Johnson, one of the most celebrated biographies written in the English language, or, with Nat specifying about being a secretary, it could be referring to Eric J. Boswell, who held the post of United States Assistant Secretary of State for Diplomatic Security from 1996 to 1998 and again from 2008 to 2012, although obviously the show would only be referring to his first stint. Napper, although seeming reluctant at first, accepts the offer, and we see that Natalie identifies as a woman, or at the very least is into cross-dressing, saying that Nat is short for Natalie, much to the dismay of Napper, I'm sure. Back in M-City, Tony Masters and another of the gay inmates head to visit with Chucky. We have seen this inmate that's with Tony before. We saw them way back in Series 1, Episode 5, Straight Life, when Beecher was strung out on drugs, and they have been in the background a few times, and we saw them earlier on being the between-round ring girl in the boxing. I only found out recently that this character actually does have a name, Kiki Faye Downing, and played by Rowan Quinn, who actually goes uncredited for most of their run on the show. But they're an English actor, born in South London, and at this stage is probably the biggest role they've had, having previously appeared in shows such as Law and Order, The Last Days of Disco, and Spin City, with credits such as Background Artist or Mary Antoinette Clubgoer. Perhaps better known for their novellas, described as literary fiction with a touch of magical realism and a dusting of horror, Rowan has written six books, Hallucination in Hong Kong, Apricot Eyes, The Host in the Attic, The Platinum Raven, the Imagination Thief, and the Beasts of Electra Drive. Chucky grabs a roll of money and heads out to ask what info Tony and Kiki have, but we cut down to the phones where Chucky is explaining to someone that Napper is writing his book. I don't think we ever find out the exact identity of who he's calling, but it's safe to assume it's someone quite high up in the family, as we see Chucky hold his hand to his face in a oh no sort of way as he agrees to what he's being told. He heads out of the phone room and runs the order by one of his goons, Don Zangi, played by John Palumbo, that they need to get hold of Napper's book and take care of Napper. Neither man seem happy about having to take Napper out, clearly still having a lot of respect for their leader, but they know that if they don't, their lack of action will have consequences as we close out Act 2. Yeah, he's writing some fucking book about his life. And from what I hear, he tells everything. Uh-huh. Okay. I want us to get the book. I'll take care of Napa. Fuck. Yeah, fuck. Act three then, and it's daybreak as Kenny is naked in his bed. JD Williams sporting a right peach of an ass and his hands have been binded to the bed frame as Adebisi jumps down from his bunk as the lights come on. The way that Kenny acts, and by asking why don't you just kill me, implies that this has been going on for a little while now, although we're never totally sure how much time actually passes on the show unless it's relevant to the storyline. Adebisi runs his hands over Kenny's body, quite forcefully pushing him around at times, as he loosens Kenny's strap saying that in Africa, the elders of the tribe would teach the young warriors not only how to fight, but how to live and proclaims himself the chief of this tribe, saying that he's going to teach Kenny the right way to behave. 
Kenny makes the massive mistake of calling Adebisi a sick motherfucker, with Adebisi grabbing Kenny's wrist and twisting it, and saying that the first lesson is about respect, eventually releasing it as Kenny arrives in pain before they head down for work. I had no memory of this happening until somebody mentioned about it on Reddit, asking whether or not Adebisi had raped Kenny. I don't think he had, at least not at this point, purely based on how Kenny is acting towards him in this scene. I think at this stage, Adebisi is dragging out the torture and would have most likely raped Kenny at some point, but at this point in time, he is on a revenge mission, or as he mentioned in the last episode, this is part of his own plan that he has for Kenny. This is a clear, concise, predetermined plan of action that he's executing here. Later in McManus' office, Kenny meets up with him for a talk, and they go over Kenny's wife being murdered, and how she was cheating on him in the process. Or so it would seem. McManus says that that can be a lot to handle emotionally, as Kenny mentions about he and his wife growing up in the same area, how they went to the same schools, and how he was supposed to take her to the prom, but he ended up getting arrested the night before, and that he feels bad on her missing out due to him messing up. McManus brings up the matter of Kenny's son, and that without a mother in the boy's life, he's going to be dependent on Kenny more than ever, and asks Kenny about joining the parenting program that they have at the prison, something that many prisons across the US have in real life, such as the Parenting Inside Out program, or the Residential Parenting program. Kenny agrees to join, saying that he'll do anything for his kid, as we get another long shot of him giving the shifty eyes that we saw back when he was questioned about Jara's murder. It's one of the more annoying traits that the show seems to have at times. There are times when things are done with a degree of subtlety, and others where you're practically smacked in the face with things, and this definitely falls into the latter. Kenny meets up with his mum, Rosetta, and his young son, Jordan. No idea who this kid is, and there's nothing in the credits either. It could have just been the son of somebody on set. But whoever this is, he was a very cute little kid, and mad to think that they're now in their early 20s. The meeting starts off well, but quickly disintegrates as Jordan starts to cry, which angers Kenny as he tells him to stop and be a man. Rosetta takes Jordan and tries to tell Kenny that he's just not used to him, but Kenny storms out of the meeting, saying that he has things to do. With the show only having a certain number of locations in which to film, you can tell that this room is what is normally the visiting room, just with a few toys thrown in to make it look like some kind of nursery. We've talked before about the show's limited budget, and for something that's only appearing for this one scene, although I think it does turn up again in the future, it would be a waste of money to build a set or redecorate an existing room, so filling it with some toys that you can just pick up from the shops was an easier, more cost-effective option on this occasion. Nighttime approaches as Adebisi straps Kenny in for the night as they reflect on Kenny's meeting with his son. Adebisi also reveals another plan that he has in mind, this time to take out McManus. McManus was just fucking with your head, little brother. The way all white men fuck with our heads. But I got a plan, Kenny. A way to break McManus. What good is that going to do? We forced them to bring someone else to run in my city. Who'll be just as bad? Who'll be one of us. Cut to the library where Clayton is on patrol, looking like he is bored out of his mind. And it's a shame he wasn't around earlier when Yuri attacked Nikolai. It's probably the most interesting thing to happen in the library for quite some time. 
Robson is looking at some books as he makes his way over to Clayton, giving him a tongue wiggle and blowing him a little kiss as some of the other Aryans laugh at him. Clayton doesn't give too much away, but you can tell that he's obviously bothered by not only being hit on by another man, even if it was just for a joke, but that he isn't seen as any sort of authority by the inmates. Cut down to the gym where Dagnasty is running drills with a sort. Douglas Crosby, who plays Dagnasty and like others that we've mentioned on the podcast, is another well-respected stunt performer and has been on the show since the start. Prior to Oz, he'd worked on movies such as Batman Forever, Twelve Monkeys, The Peacemaker, and The Jackal, and also had a number of minor acting roles with credits for Natural Born Killers, Scar City, and Third Watch. And I mentioned Hannibal earlier on, he also turns up in that as an undercover DEA agent, but went uncredited. Although he is credited for stunts on that movie. Clayton passes by and watches the team running the drills later on asks his co-workers about whether or not they've ever considered transferring from being a CO to being a member of the sort. Something that Dagnosti has obviously done at some point as he was only a CO when we first saw him on the show. Diane says that they're not big on women, while Murphy laments that they remove all the human parts of your body. He says that he appreciates what they do, but that it takes a special kind of hardness to be part of the sort. There's an awkward silence when Clayton asks whether or not Murphy is implying that he doesn't have that hardness, and things get even more awkward when Claire enters the staff room looking for some sweet and low. Diane tells Claire that what she's done to McManus sucks, and that accusing him of sexual harassment is an insult to women who've actually been abused. But Claire tries to play the victim, saying that McManus treated her like a shitball, and asks if Diane is referring to herself as being abused. Diane saying that she was, something that was alluded to back in series one. Claire says that Diane's problem is that she wants to be everyone's pal. Diane countering that Claire wants to be everyone's worst nightmare, as Claire leaves having found some sweet and low for a coffee. Ray, with one of the best delivered lines on the show so far, calls Claire the right type of person for sort, which gets a laugh out of Murphy. Unfortunately, Ray is a member of the group that calls it the sort team and not just the sort, but that was still a great line regardless. There's been a few moments this series where there has been a well-timed line which takes just enough of the intensity off. Not too much to undermine it, but just enough to give you a bit of comic relief. And I never expected a moment like that to come from Ray either, so well done there. Claire conducts her rounds in solitary where she finds William Giles collapsed on the floor of his cell, as we see Augustus discussing being drawn and quartered. Drawing and quartering. A man was tied to the tail of a horse and dragged along the ground to a gallows where he was hung till he was half dead. Then, brought down, his body cut open, his entrails taken out and burned. Then his head cut off and his body sliced into quarters. After all that indignity, the hangman would hold up the dead man's heart and yell, Behold, the heart of a traitor! While there is evidence of the practice being used during the American War of Independence, by both the Patriots and the Loyalists, this torture and execution method was more prominent in England, where it was a punishment for treason, with its first recorded occurrence during the reign of King Henry III between 1216 and 1272, before becoming a statutory penalty following the passing of the Treason Act in 1351. The dismembered limbs of the traitor would often be displayed in prominent places around the country to serve as a warning to others. While for fear of being considered barbaric, the punishment was only applied to male traitors, with women who were convicted of treason merely being burned at the stake. While the original Treason Act required at least one witness, 
this was increased to two in 1547. Quite as to why beggars believe as those accused were not allowed any witnesses of their own or a defence counsel, and were essentially convicted guilty from the outset, a practice which ran for centuries. The act was amended in 1695 following charges against the Whigs' political faction, in which a defendant was now entitled to counsel as well as witnesses, a copy of the indictment, and a trial by jury. While being hung, drawn and quartered was abolished in England in 1870, and despite nobody being executed by capital punishment since 1964, the death penalty for treason wasn't officially abolished until 1998 following the passing of the Crime and Disorder Act. It's here as well where we see that Augustus Cell is transforming into an oubliette, which is a form of underground dungeon with the opening in the roof. Often deep so that the prisoner couldn't climb out, it's a place in which its inhabitant would essentially be forgotten about and left to die from starvation. Cut to Leo walking through the corridor, and I think now is as good a time as any to introduce Ernie Hudson to the podcast. I had planned on doing it earlier, but there just wasn't the right time to fit it in. Leo doesn't actually feature anywhere as much as I seem to remember him doing so. He's appeared in every episode so far and been part of storylines and even had focused ones, but as I mentioned earlier, with the show having such a wide array of characters, his segments tend to come and go quite quickly. Born December 17th, 1945 in Benton Harbor, Michigan, Ernest Lee Hudson got off to a very difficult start in life, never knowing his father, and his mother passing away from tuberculosis when he was just two months old, leaving Ernie to be raised by his grandmother. Ernie joined the United States Marines in his teens, but was discharged on medical grounds after only three months due to being an asthmatic. Moving to Detroit and marrying his wife, Jeannie Moore, in 1963 at just 18 years of age, Ernie joined Concept East, the oldest black theatre company in the country, and later enrolled at Wayne State University to develop his acting and writing skills, having written short stories in his youth, graduating in 1973 with a BA degree, as well as helping to form the Actors Ensemble Theatre. After his first marriage ended in divorce in 1976, Ernie enrolled in a doctoral program at the Twin Cities campus of the University of Minnesota. However, he dropped out after only a few semesters to appear in a production of Howard Sackler's play, The Great White Hope staged at the Minneapolis Theatre in the Round Players. Despite critical acclaim and a sold-out run of shows, Ernie at one point walked out on the play over a series of financial disputes, the main one being that he wasn't getting paid for many of his performances, leaving Ernie and his young family close to eviction. This led to action from the mayor of Minneapolis and the creation and funding of the Penumbra Theatre, a forum for people of colour within the theatre community of the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul. Ernie also won a scholarship to attend the Yale School of Drama, studying towards a Master of Fine Arts, but would leave a year later to appear in his film debut in 1976's Lead Belly, playing the part of Archie, as well as the Human Tornado. Ernie would close out the 1970s with minor roles on TV for shows such as Mad Bull, Fantasy Island, and The Incredible Hulk, and on film appearing in the main event in 1979. Ernie continued to appear in supporting roles throughout the early 80s in films such as The Jazz Singer, Penitentiary 2, Going Berserk, and Two of a Kind. While on TV, he had guest spots on Too Close for Comfort, Little House on the Prairie, Taxi, The A-Team, and The Dukes of Hazard before landing his first recurring role in 1984, appearing in six episodes of Sent Elsewhere during the show's first season, and in episodes where Tom Fontana was also credited. 
1984 also saw Ernie's big break on screen, coming the smash hit comedy Ghostbusters, playing the part of Winston Zedmore. A hugely influential film with a massive impact on popular culture, the film grossed over $229 million at the US box office, the highest grossing comedy of all time upon release, and the second highest grossing movie of the year behind Beverly Hills Cop, which was released in the summer. The film grossed a further $53 million in international markets, for a total of over $282 million worldwide. Adjusting for inflation with takings from re-releases, at the time of recording the film sits at number 37 in the highest grossing films at the US box office, higher than any other comedy movie. Despite being cast in one of the lead roles, Ernie had to audition a total of five times for the part of Winston, and had to wait for a month to learn of his success in landing it, partly due to the studio looking to cast Eddie Murphy in the role. Furthermore, earlier drafts of the script saw Ernie appear as early as page 28, including saying the iconic he slime me line spoken by Bill Murray's character Peter Venkman in the finished cut. However, the part of Winston was reduced following rewrites to push the focus onto Bill Murray as the star of the film, with Ernie's first appearance as Winston finally coming on page 65. Speaking in Netflix The Movies That Made Us in 2019, Ernie recalls a story of co-star Harold Ramis telling him, All this stuff you think is personal, it's nothing to do with you. You've gotta let that go, it's Hollywood. Ernie would have a larger role in the inevitable sequel, 1989's Ghostbusters 2, with roles in Weeds, The Wrong Guys, Leviathan, and Collision Course along the way. While on TV he lent his vocal talents to eight episodes of the Superpowers team, Galactic Guardians, as well as appearing in eight episodes of The Last Precinct, as himself in the Super Mario Bros. Super Show, as well as the TV movies Tornado and The Cherokee Kid. Moving into the 90s, Ernie appeared as Solomon in 1992's The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, as well as having a very busy 1994 with credits for Airheads, No Escape, Sugar Hill, and Speechless. But most notably that year he played the part of Sergeant Albrecht in the movie adaptation of The Crow, the ill-fated movie that saw the tragic onset accident which contributed to the death of the film's lead, Brandon Lee. In 1995, Ernie appeared in The Basketball Diaries and Congo, a film which also features Adewale Akinoe Obaje, while in 1997 he appeared in Faking the Funk, and Mr. Magoo. On TV, he appeared in a number of miniseries, including Broken Bridges from 1990 to 1991, Wild Palms in 1993, and Operation Delta Force in 1997, and also provided voiceover work for Superman the Animated Series before appearing here on Oz. So Leo is approached by Ray, who mentions that he wants to talk about Clayton, and Leo automatically assumes the worst, asking what did he do now? But Ray says that they've had a conversation, and that Clayton feels that he needs to know whether or not his dad's killer is still in Oz. Leo has a great moment where he wipes his head as if to say, oh for fuck's sake, not this again. But Ray has been doing some research and has found 26 inmates who may have answers to the mystery, and he felt like he owed it to Leo to tell him that he intends to talk to them. Leo doesn't think that interrogating the inmates will achieve anything, saying that they already did that at the time and came up with nothing and Ray admits that he might also find nothing, but with so many years passing, he's hopeful that maybe somebody is now willing to give up some information. Ray heads down to the hospital and runs into Gloria. I don't think we've seen many, if any, scenes between just Gloria and Ray. I think the only time we've ever seen them together is in some sort of staff meeting, 
I like that he just calls her Glow, though, so there is some kind of friendship there between the two, even if we've never seen it on screen. Ray says that he's come to talk with... Oh, fucking hell, it's William Giles. Can't say that I've missed having Giles around. His screen time in Series 2 went far beyond what he should have done. Thankfully, this is the only time that we'll see him in this series, but this isn't the end for the William Giles character. He's around for a little while yet. Gloria tells Ray that Giles has suffered a mild heart attack, which explains why he was unconscious on the floor of his cell earlier, and that he's being kept in for observation. Ray asks whether or not he's still speaking in Morse code, which is probably the one thing that would make Giles even more annoying as it would just be a series of dots and dashes. Luckily for Ray, and for us, let's be honest, Giles is capable of answering yes or no questions quite well, so Ray heads in to talk with him. He passes Poet and Junior, who are still laid up in the hospital, wrapped up like a pair of mummies following the attack from Adebisi, as he then sits down to talk with Giles to close out Act 3. William? Remember me? Father Makata. Yes? How are you feeling? Better? Yes. I've been meaning to come to see you in solitary. Would you mind if I asked you a question? No. You remember 17 years ago a CEO named Samuel Hughes? Yes. You remember that he was killed here in Oz? Yeah. Were you there in the cafeteria when he was killed? Yes. You know who killed him? You know who killed Samuel Hughes? Tell bye-bye, die. No, you won't, I swear. You'll be back in solitary, where no inmate can hurt you. No. There's a young man, Samuel Hughes' son, Clayton. He needs to know what happened to his father. I've talked to all the other prisoners who were here then, and no one will tell me anything. William, please. Which prisoner killed Samuel Hughes? No, no prisoner. Not a prisoner. Then who? Leo Glenn. With Giles unable to say pretty much anything resembling a normal conversation, the focus put on his hands and twitching fingers as Ray questioned him was a good technique of putting across his fear of speaking out. The revelation of Leo being the one that killed Sam did seem to come out of left field a bit, and as with most things that Giles says, it has to be taken with a pinch of salt, but I'm interested to see how Ray is going to approach this next time he speaks to either Leo or Clayton. Into Act 4 then, we get a flashback of Lepresti finding Andrew in the hall having suffered his drug overdose, and we also see Diane walking through Unit B before sitting down to have a chat with Lepresti, saying Morning Glen. I don't know what name I expected Lepresti to have, but I would never have predicted that it had been called Glen. He sat there having a flick through an adult magazine, possibly confiscated from a shakedown, as Diane talks about how it's so peaceful and quiet first thing in the morning, and that she wishes they could just leave it like that. 
Lepresti mentions about Andrew ODing, Diane saying that she'd heard the news and asks how Andrew got the drugs if he was down in the hall. Lepresti saying that he doesn't know and asks whether or not Leo is investigating. Lepresti doesn't think that Leo seems too anxious to find out as he leaves for the day. So Lepresti at some point has been switched to the night shift as we've previously seen him working the days. Lepresti bringing up Andrew ODing completely unprovoked and for seemingly no reason at all other than to have this awkward conversation with Diane to remind us of the previous episode didn't really work for me. Obviously this was back in the days of weekly episodes and I've mentioned before about how the show usually does callbacks and references to its past really well, but the way this one played out was really odd. Perhaps Diane could have asked if Lepresti had heard about Andrew ODing to make it work, but Lepresti being the one to bring it up just makes this all feel a bit... As I say, it's just awkward, because there's really no reason for him to be the one to mention it. Clearly thinking she's a schoolteacher, Diane rings the bell to start the day, waking up Robson and Schillinger in the process. Robson jumps down from his bunk, but Schillinger doesn't seem as keen to get up. Reminiscing about knowing a man who only had one arm, but had dreams about having two, only to wake up and be reminded that the other limb had gone, and that every morning was like the first time. So Schillinger is showing his own version of remorse for what happened to Andrew, but Robson is quick to tell him that putting Andrew to the test like that was the right thing to do, and that Andrew showed that he was weak, and not one of the Brotherhood. Schillinger kind of agrees with him, liking it to euthanasia to keep Andrew away from Beecher and Keller, and he does say that he saved Andrew, but there is a faraway look in his eyes as he says it. He knows he can try and justify it whatever way he wants to, but this has also allowed for Schillinger to reflect on how he's turned out as a parent. We've seen that he has a strained relationship with his own father, and admit that he himself has been a bad example to his kids. But outliving one of his sons, even though he's directly responsible for it happening, has clearly hurt Schillinger. With regards to the Nazi symbol that Andrew and Metzger both had tattooed on them, I saw that recently in a Louis Farouk documentary that I was watching. I saw some kind of flag hanging in the background and I thought, hang about, I've seen that before. And as I mentioned previously, I thought that was something that had just been made for the show, but it's actually the symbol used by the Aryan Nations, founded by Richard Gant Butler in the 1970s and who was still the head of the group at the time of broadcast. It also adds an entire new layer to Schillinger and his followers as the Aryan Nations were classed as a terrorist group by the FBI in 2001. So far from just being what he considers to be a patriotic American, it means that Schillinger's belief-based actions take an entirely different turn more sinister than they were before, which was already pretty fucking sinister. Cut to the kitchen where Beecher and Keller are sitting down for lunch, with Keller telling Beecher that he's going to ask McManus for them to be moved back in together but Beecher tells him not to and does his best to ignore Keller as he eats. Keller caresses Beecher's leg, but Beecher doesn't want anything to do with him and asks Keller to let go. Keller reminds him that Beecher wanted his revenge on Schillinger and he helped him get it as Beecher asks if Keller did it for them. Keller says that he did, but Beecher reaffirms that he and Keller are through and he gets up to leave and tells Keller to fuck his ass leaving Keller alone before we head off to Keller running into Sister Pete at the visiting room. They talk about having a session later on, but right now Keller is having another visit from one of his ex-wives, Pete asking which one, Kitty or Angelique. Keller though is meeting with Bonnie, wife number two and number four, who he describes as the best, which as she equates to 50% of his marriages would make that accurate. 
or at least the most popular. He points through the visiting room window saying, there she is, there she is, and Pete thinks he's referring to the pity redhead. But in a great misdirect, the camera swings to the side revealing a larger woman in a red dress. The exchange here between Keller and Pete is fantastic. Pete hesitates as she tries to find the word to describe Bonnie, saying, Chris, she's... she's... But Keller just chimes in, calling her huge. And Pete even asks if she gained some weight after the divorce. But Keller says that Bonnie was like that both times he married her, and heads into the room and he and Bonnie proceed to wear the faces off of each other. Going back to the commentary by Tom Fontana and Chaz Palminteri from episode 4, where we first saw Keller meeting with Kitty, or was it Angelique, I can't remember now, this was something that Chris Maloney pushed for during filming, figuring that the difference between Bonnie and the other two wives would make for a good laugh. And to be fair, it does, in that it totally subverts the expectation that we have for Keller at this point, going from conventional, slim, attractive women to someone with a little more junk in the trunk. And that's not me being mean about this woman's weight. Believe me, I'm the last person on earth who can criticise anyone about being overweight. But in the context here, it works and was very funny. The actress playing Bonnie here goes uncredited, but is played by an actress named Mindy Luce. Virtually no information about her online, just a handful of credits on IMDb, this being her acting debut. Following his rendezvous with Bonnie, Keller meets up with Sister Pete later in the day for their session. They talk about how Keller was only 17 when he first became involved with Schillinger during a stretch up at Lardner, with Pete asking whether or not Schillinger forced himself onto Keller. But Keller says that he let Schillinger think that he did, because Schillinger likes the power part of sex. Pete asks if Keller likes having sex with men, which is Keller's cue to try and spin the conversation around and start asking the questions himself. But Pete is wise to this now, saying that he always does this whenever they get to a subject that Keller doesn't want to talk about. There's also a moment where Keller, who's describing Pete as being wild, appears as though he's going to grab a breast, but in fact picks a speck of lint from a jumper. And Pete looks, I wouldn't say incredibly, but she's certainly uncomfortable talking about her past sex life. Having called Keller out on his question manoeuvring, Pete gets to the heart of things about why they're having these sessions. You saw my ex, Bonnie? When I met her, she was all alone, very unhappy. So I knew it'd be easy to get her to fall in love with me. But what I didn't know was after I broke her heart, would she still love me? See, I'm a piece of shit. I am worthless. As bad as they come. And to have someone keep loving me, no matter how bad, happy now. You got me to open up and spill my guts all over your table. Breakthrough. Pete clarifies that rather than being on the side of the Aryans, Keller broke Beecher's limbs to test Beecher's love for him, with Keller saying that he wanted unconditional surrender at first, with unconditional love to follow. He admits that Beecher doesn't love him, 
Pete reckoning that that must be killing Keller inside, which after a long pause Keller admits to. Really enjoyed the scene between these two once again, and this one in particular has the unveiling of Keller's somewhat sociopathic tendencies, as well as partaking in a touch of schadenfreude. Becoming involved sexually with Schillinger at such a young age would be enough to cause anybody to rethink who they are, but Keller admitting that he was manipulating Schillinger to a certain degree shows that he wasn't broken by the experience in the same way that Beecher was. Quite how he developed these sociopathic traits also remains somewhat of a mystery, but Keller seems to have suffered from a lack of love in his life, whether that's affection from his parents when he was younger, or from past sexual relationships with women, men, or both. It's part of the reason he's drawn to Beecher. We covered how Beecher struggled to adjust with coming to Oz, and how his whole sexual orientation appeared to change in a desperate pursuit of any kind of affection. It's possible that Keller sees a lot of his own qualities in Beecher, and if they can just love each other, no matter what happens between them, then in some way maybe Beecher can be the one to save Keller from himself. We get a shot of Keller looking down to Beecher's pod, who we see reciting the Lord's Prayer, and also pan up to Saeed, who's saying his own prayers. I'm struggling to think who Keller might be sharing a pod with at this time. All of the core characters are either already sharing, or in some cases are currently out of M-City in the hospital ward. So Keller is either sharing with a background character, or he's making the most of having the place to himself. Cut to the next day, and Beecher is sat in the classroom by himself as Saeed enters with Nassim. Saeed tells Beecher that they have the room reserved for the study group which was a bit dickish as Beecher did get up to leave once they got there. He wasn't causing any bother, seemingly just there having some quiet contemplation, so there was no need for Saeed to basically tell him the fuck off like that. As he goes to leave, Beecher turns back and mentions that he was raised Episcopalian, a mainline denomination of Christianity, mainly based within the US and which around the time of broadcast had approximately 3.5 million members. Describing itself as Protestant yet Catholic, it's considered to be one of the more liberal sectors of the Christian church, opposing the death penalty and supporting the civil rights movement, as well as ordaining female priests in the 1970s, but is perhaps most notable for its affirmation and call for full legal equality of the LGBT community, even passing resolutions in 2015 during its 78th General Convention, allowing the blessing of same-sex marriages. Beecher jokes that being Episcopalian meant that they thought about God for an hour a week, whereas Saeed thinks about him all the time and asks him why. Saeed says that he wants to know God, something that Beecher says that he also wants, as well as for God to know him, and that he's still in Oz. We covered Beecher hitting rock bottom and questioning his faith back in Series 2, and throughout Series 3 we've seen that he's still recovering from all of that, much in the same way that he's still recovering from his drug addiction. He tells Saeed that when he first arrived in Oz he read the Bible from Genesis to Apocalypse, the last book of the Bible is in fact the book of Revelation, but it's often referred to by various other titles such as the Revelation to John, Apocalypse of John, or simply the Apocalypse, like how Beecher refers to it here, or the Revelation. I also thought that Genesis to Apocalypse sounded like a good name for an album, only to find out that Genesis' debut album from 1969 is already titled From Genesis to Revelation, so unfortunately that's already been done. Said calls the Bible a great book, the Bible selling itself short, only calling itself the good book, as Beecher asks if he can borrow Saeed's copy of the Quran, which Saeed gladly hands over. Beecher goes to leave once again as Arif and Amid arrive for the study group, 
but Saeed asks Bija if he'd like to stay and listen to the discussion, something which seems to anger Harif and Hamid as Saeed offers Bija a seat. Cut to the kitchen where Hamid is berating Saeed for allowing, as he puts it, a non-believer into the study group. Saeed calls him out on that, asking if he actually means a white man, but Arif is quick to join in, saying that Beecher doesn't belong with them, that Saeed calls Beecher a lost soul searching for the truth, and that he has every right to receive instruction. Hamid firmly tells Saeed no, however, and that ever since coming to Oz, he's had to listen to Saeed rationalise his actions, but now he sees that Saeed is no longer fit to lead them, saying that they need an imam who is above reproach. Saeed asks whether or not Hamid sees himself as that person, Hamid saying that he does, as he gives an order prompting the other Muslims to rise to their feet and march out of the kitchen, and we see once again that they are now all dressing differently from Saeed. Previously, the Muslims' uniform dress was a symbol of the group's unity as well as Saeed's leadership and his position, but now he has just one follower still following that example, who was Nassim. Hamid calls for Nassim to come with him, which he eventually does while on the verge of tears. They leave Saeed sat at the table as he trembles, while also receiving some light heckling from some of her inmates. Back in M30, Beecher finds Saeed sat on the staircase and asks whether or not what he's heard is true, Saeed confirming that it is. Beecher takes a seat on the stairs, knocking the very wobbly handrail in the process, and tells Saeed that he still wants him to teach him about God. Saeed musters something of a smile, but admits that he isn't sure if he can, as we cut to McManus talking to Leo in his office, discussing Beecher coming to McManus asking for Saeed to be moved into his pod, as well as being out of the Muslim group. Leo says that he wants a meeting with the new leader, as we get the crime flashback of Amid Khan, which sees him stopping a sexual assault, chasing after and catching the perpetrator, and giving him a bit of a beating. Hamid is convicted of aggravated assault, and sentenced to 10 years, up for parole in 5. Leo should actually be very familiar with Hamid because, as I mentioned when we first met him, Hamid Khan is played by Ernie Hudson Jr. Born March 9th, 1965 in Benton Harbor, Michigan, just like his dad, Ernest Lee Hudson Jr. attended film school at CW Post Long Island University in Brookville, New York, and later attended California University of Pennsylvania in Metropolitan Pittsburgh, earning a Master of Science degree in Exercise Science. Following in his father's footsteps, Ernie Jr. made his TV acting debut at the age of 19, appearing as a breakdancer in a season 4 episode of TJ Hooker on ABC, but wouldn't appear on screen again until 1998, appearing in episodes of Soldier of Fortune Inc. and Martial Law, both of which were in their debut season. Making his film debut that same year in the action thriller Butter, released under the title Never Too Big in the US, this was the first time that Ernie Jr. shared the screen with his father. Also that year, father and son appeared in the movie Hijack, also known as The Last Siege, and Never Surrender in some territories. In 1999, Ernie Jr. appeared in Candyman 3 Day of the Dead, before appearing with his dad again here on Oz. We see Saeed packing up his belongings and moving out of the pod he was sharing with Arif, and he passes Arif, Hamid, and another of his former followers, who were all giving him the turn-back treatment much like how Saeed did to Hussaini back in Series 1. I've got to admit as well, I really like the new outfits that the Muslims have now that Hamid has taken over. Arif hasn't got the right hat yet, but the full black with the coloured caps, which is the flag of the Black Panthers, they look really fucking cool. 
Saeed heads downstairs with Beecher, still receiving some taunts about moving in with the white folk, which sounded like it came from Ryan, as the two of them make their way into their pod as someone else calls them lovebirds. This ties into Augustus' final narration, which sees him explain his favourite form of torture, riding the stag, being left in his own darkened tomb, you hear the stone tablet being placed down sealing him in, as we also see Beecher awoken during the night by Saeed clutching his pillow and crying. Beecher places his hand on Saeed's to comfort him as we pan across MC, the sound of Saeed's whimpering ringing out as we fade to black to end the episode. My all-time favourite punishment is called riding the stag. The wittiest person in town would be put on a chair, carried around the streets by his fellow townspeople while he banged on a bucket and yelled out dirty limericks condemning the accused. Being made fun of being humiliated in front of everyone else in your community. That may be the cruelest punishment of all. So there you go, Series 3, Episode 6, Cruel and Unusual Punishments. Really enjoyed this episode. I think this was one of the strongest episodes we've had for quite some time. It started off with a bang with a feel-good moment of Cyril defeating Chucky to advance to the championship fight in the boxing tournament. The whole segment of Nikolai trying to get Yuri whacked only to nearly wind up dead himself was really good. Ryan had to use his wits in the first step of a potential new feud with El Cid and Miguel moved a step closer to coming eye to what used to be eyes with Rivera. Chucky's been put into a position where his loyalty to Nappa is going to be tested, Adebisi firmly re-established his position as leader of the homeboys, Ray is hot on the trail of Samuel Hughes' killer, and Keller let his mask slip a bit as we finally got to see a personal side to him. All topped off with Saeed being ousted as leader of the Muslims, but the promise of a new friendship looms as he and Beecher continue to look for answers through faith. So, a lot of stuff crammed into this episode, but nothing felt like it ever overstayed its welcome. Just going through that recap, you had about six or seven different segments to the show within 60 minutes. So we're talking less than 10 minutes each, which might not sound like much, but at the same time, nothing felt like it was ever there just to fill time. I also thought that Terry Kinney did a very good job directing this episode too. Nothing looked cheap or horrible nor did it feel like it was an episode done by a first-time director. He's been on the show since the start, and we're 22 episodes in at this point, so he knows how the show should look. The only drawback was that this is another episode where Miguel's facial scar has gone missing again for no reason, but on the whole, job well done. Get the fuck out of my office. Scenes that were cut from this episode, we had a scene between McManus and Murphy discussing about how they've noticed a change in both Adebisi and Kenny ever since Kenny got back from his wife's funeral. They discussed tactics on how to deal with it, 
McManus bringing up his past with Kenny about convincing him to get his high school diploma, which leaves Murphy to talk with Adebisi. Murphy asks for advice on how to get through to him, which led to a good line from McManus about liking hats. A good line, but not enough to warrant having this in the episode, so rightfully cut in my opinion. It also starts off with Adebisi looking across M-City to Saeed, which seemed to be planting the seed for something that does make it into a future episode, which we'll cover in due course. We also get Murphy attempting to talk with Adebisi in the kitchen pantry, complimenting him on his shaved head, and he talks about noticing the power shifting like the tides, and that he wants Adebisi to know that he's aware of it. Adebisi mentions his village in Nigeria being landlocked, so he knows nothing about the tides, and that Murphy should be happy while he can, and then calls to Kenny to do some work. This scene had a moment where Adebisi calls Murphy officer, which seemed really out of character for him. Murphy commands a different kind of respect to his predecessors, but Adebisi in this form wouldn't be giving that kind of respect to him or anybody else, even if he was doing it sarcastically, which even then I don't think Adebisi would be bright enough to pull off. So this scene didn't really work for me, and again, I think it was right to cut it. We also get a scene in which Beecher goes to McManus, accusing Schillinger of getting drugs to Andrew in the hall, knowing that Andrew would likely relapse. McManus tries to brush him off, but Beecher says that not only is he guilty too, but so is McManus for bringing Andrew into M-City in the first place, saying that he knew something would happen because they hate Schillinger as much as each other. Beecher accuses McManus of setting the whole thing up knowing that something would happen, although he didn't know what exactly. Beecher says that he's living with his part of the guilt, but there's plenty for everyone, as McManus calls for Beecher to be escorted away, but Beecher heads away of his own accord. I can understand why this was filmed, and it could have easily ended up in the episode, but having Beecher be the only one to show any kind of remorse for Andrew's death sets him apart from the others in the situation, and if this was to be left in would complicate his storyline with Saeed going forward, which works better with Beecher suffering with the guilt on his own. So again, the right decision to cut this, I feel. But the big thing that we have to talk about here, and this also kind of ties into the deleted scenes for the next episode, but it'll be easier to discuss it here, is that there was supposedly a scene depicting Yuri Kasijin being murdered by a character named Lana Keese, who it's said was played by the guest starring Amy Madigan, who at this time was probably best known for her appearances in Field of Dreams and Uncle Buck. Had she appeared on us, she'd have been another member of the cast to have also appeared on Frasier, but I'll have that list of names another time. The legend goes that after being removed from the hall, Yuri is placed in solitary confinement for the attempted murder of Nikolai, just like Ryan said that he would be. Lana, posing as an employee of the State Department, came to us to question Yuri about his mob dealings, during which she murders Yuri in his cell so it's possible that Lana could have been connected to a rival Russian mafia group in some way, and that this was a killing set up by them, possibly as revenge for a previous hit carried out by Yuri. Footage of this scene has never surfaced, so it's impossible to know whether this scene was actually filmed or not. Some say that it was meant to be in the next episode, with TV Guide including it in the episode synopsis, meaning that it may have been included and then removed before transmission. Or it was never filmed in the first place, and this is just some kind of Oz urban legend. But either way, this is the last episode in which we see Yuri Kasijin, meaning that we have to say goodbye to Olek Krupa. After leaving Oz, Olek appeared on TV in Law & Order Special Victims Unit in 2000 for the episode Russian Love Poem, reuniting with Christopher Maloney and Dean Winters, 
While in 2001 he played the recurring role of Inspector Guido Borgia in As the World Turns, as well as the TV miniseries The Grid in 2004. Other recurring roles on TV include the role of Radovan Bernavig on FX's The Americans between 2013 and 2017, as well as Madam Secretary in 2015, and in 2017 appeared in episodes of Iron Fist and Elementary. Appearing in minor roles, Ulick's film credits post-stars include Behind Enemy Lines in 2001, 2003's remake of The Italian Job, Burn After Reading, which also featured J.K. Simmons, Salt, X-Men First Class, The Dictator, Hidden Figures, and The Fate of the Furious, with his most recent credit coming in 2019's The Sunlit Night. His next project is listed as being for the TV show Four Kings, currently listed as being in post-production. Olek's daughter Julia has also worked in film production, working as a costume designer on 2003's Bring in Rain and 2004's Jailbait, as well as working in the transportation department on 2008's Cloverfield and The Son of No One in 2011. She's also appeared as an actress appearing in the 2015 Polish movie Aktorka. With a death toll of one for the episode and dying at the hands of Yuri Kasijin, it's also time to say goodbye to William Cudney, played by William Cote. After leaving the show, William continued to act in minor roles on TV in shows such as Law & Order Special Victims Unit, The Jury, Mr. Robot, and The Characters, with his most recent acting credit coming in 2017 for The Marvelous Miss Maisel, and on film with roles in 2004's Taxi, Fighting in 2009, and Remember Me in 2010. William is another member of the Oz cast who's more known for his stunt work rather than his actual acting with stunt credits on TV for shows such as Brotherhood, Kidnapped, Gossip Girl, 30 Rock, NYC 22, Hostages, The Americans, The Leftovers, House of Cards, Manifest, and his most recent stunt credit coming for the 2020 miniseries The Plot Against America, as well as doing stunt work for the HBO production of Mildred Pierce, as well as 10 episodes of Boardwalk Empire. Not limited to TV, Williams' film stunt credits include stunts for American Gangster, I Am Legend, Zombieland, The Greatest Showman, and Avengers Infinity War. At the time of recording, he is credited for stunt work on both Bruised and The Woman in the Window, both listed as being completed and awaiting release, as well as one episode of Why the Last Man, which is listed as being in post-production. Also leaving the show is Sybil Walker, playing the part of Rosetta Wangler. Post-Oz, Sybil had credits on TV for Lizzie McGuire on the Disney Channel, ABC's 2003 reboot of Dragnet, NYPD Blue, and ER, as well as for film including credits for the 1999 Christmas movie 24 Nights, 2004's The Last Shot, and the Oscar-winning Dreamgirls in 2006, playing the part of Charlene. Her final acting credit is listed as being for a 2007 episode of Numbers for CBS, appearing during the show's fourth season. The Oz One and Done Club also gained a new member as we finally met Bonnie Keller, played by Mindy Luce. As I mentioned earlier, this was her acting debut and she only had two other acting roles after her appearance here on Oz, one being for the short film Penis Envy from 2004 and the pilot episode of Mr. Wright in 2014. My episode MVP, I'm going to start off with some honourable mentions, the first of which is for Tobias Beecher for sticking by Saeed in his hour of need, as well as one for Sister Pete for making some real progress in her sessions with Miguel as well as supporting Tina Rivera, and for making the breakthrough with Keller. 
but the main award I'm going to give to Cyrilo O'Reilly for his all-conquering win over Chucky Pancamo in the boxing. Granted, Cyril has had some help along the way thanks to his brother, but he's completely unaware of that, and in his eyes and those of the other inmates, David slayed Goliath in a rare feel-good moment on the show. So for those reasons, Cyril picks up the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Overcast, Castbox, Castro Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. The show is also now available over on iHeartRadio, as well as being available on Podchase.com. There you will find the complete Series 1 and 2 of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 3 so far, and you'll also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes there as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a 5-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can email the show at insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter by following the handle at insideozpodcast. Next time on Inside Oz, we're downing our superhero masks and capes as we assume our Series 3, Episode 7, Secret Identities. Where Sister Pete makes a life-changing decision, Miguel and Rivera finally meet face-to-face, Mamanus faces a whole new set of allegations, Shirley has herself a new cellmate, and Amid Khan and Jason Kramer square off in the boxing to see who will face Cyril in the championship bout. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the world's only Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone. Thanks.